Acts chapter 8, and uh, we're going to come around our series in Acts Reenacted that we've been covering for quite some time now. <laughs> Last week, we looked at, uh, we were introduced to Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Some people are uh, trying to decide whether these seven that were raised up were in fact either deacons or elders. And uh, there's different um, talk that gets around that. They definitely had great spiritual presence, which caused some people to believe they fit the elder bill more so than deacons because uh, they, what, they, what they brought to the table. And because you've got two very clear evangelists, they're obviously operating in an ascension gift. However, I like the, the idea of them being, because of their primary role of being minister of tables, I like the idea of the deacon idea because it also doesn't get deacons off the hook about being spirit-led and stuff like that and actually realizing the spiritual nature of the ministry they do as well. So it's a it's line ball which one it is. But out of that, Philip the Evangelist is one of those guys that come out of that. And uh, we see last week that he was forced out of Jerusalem and uh, because of the early persecution that was going on. And uh, we find that he was one of the, fir- the church's first major missionary exports. And uh, we learned about his mission field in Samaria. And we looked a little bit at what the ministry of an evangelist did and also what he needed. Evangelists have the Hellenistic world in their sights, but still need and depend on the Hebraic church to back them up. Now, I'm going to leave that there. If you're going, I have no clue what you're on about right now, it means you missed last Sunday. Get the CD. And, uh, and get the rundown of how all that works. Today, though, we're going to keep exploring that work in Samaria. And uh, in particular, we're going to take a bit of a look at the role of making disciples once an evangelist has done what he is doing. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 9 today. And uh, let's get into that. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention, and they exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Stop there for about five seconds. We're going to keep our thumb in there. We're going to come back to the text. We're introduced here to Simon the Sorcerer. He goes down in history, also known as Simon Magus. Obviously, the Magus, the magician bit is referred to there. His work in magic and divination and self-promotion was so effective that he was revered as the great power of God. Scholars point to this being akin to acknowledging this guy as a supreme deity. And this guy, there's a lot of historic evidence to suggest that this guy carried himself in such a way. He believed in his own mind he was someone great, and he managed to convince the crowds around him that he was, in fact, someone great. As you can imagine from what we know of their history Samaria had, had become a spiritual void. On one side, they were fighting with the Jews and the finer details of worship, such as the temple and, and the, the Torah. And on the other side, 
We have an anything goes idolatrous presence in the nation. And the end result of that basically is the realization of a very well-known phrase. If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. Who's ever heard that before? If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. Samaria is in that place right now. Uh, I don't know if we want to stand for the Judaism side of us. So we'll look at elsewhere. Don't know if we really want to stand for that God or that God or that God or that God. So we'll just keep our options open. As a result, they publicly elevated and deified a man for his magic without giving any heed to his character or motives. And they were paying him handsomely to be a temporal, flesh-pleasing Messiah. He had no intentions of enhancing their devotion or their true knowledge of any God. Instead, he was happy to receive worship and have his pockets lined by saying the right things and by manipulating the crowd. You see, where there is a spiritual vacuum, friends, something will fill it. I alluded to that last week when I spoke about how I believe the end time Antichrist will emerge. When people want messianic answers, when people want to make sense of what is going on around us, whoever appears to have the answers is going to get the voice. Right now we have an opportunity before that time comes. The end time is coming. We live in the last days. Whoever has the answers has the voice. Who gets the chance to speak the answer, us or them? A few few years prior to this story, Jesus has already been to this area. And he's been revealed already as the Messiah. John chapter 4, woman at the well. When the Messiah comes and Jesus goes, he's here. Without doing a single miracle, Jesus caused great crowds to follow him. But since he left and since the Great Commission had not been launched, the vacuum was there again and it was quickly filled by a cheap substitute. Now, that happens today as well. There have actually been significant times of revival and awakening in this nation over the years. How many are aware of our church history like that? There has been some wake-up calls like you would not believe. There is a, the turn of the century. We saw the, the Pentecostal movement hit Australia like, you, like, a, like a ton of bricks. started with a youth movement. There's been all sorts of great things happen. In the 70s, there was another revival as, as well. Not so long ago, about a generation or so, Sunday schools in Baptist churches all across Australia were chock-a-block full. Even in Wangaratta, which is a small church now, they were bussing kids in and out of and, and driving kids home for Sunday school before church. There are Sunday school halls all over. If you go to Albury and stuff like that, there are churches that have gigantic buildings labeled Sunday school building, and they're actually built sometimes bigger than the actual main church auditorium. Yet if you ask many people in the 20 to 40 bracket about their faith today, 
you'll hear a growing number of people referring to themselves as spiritual but not religious. One recent survey suggests this accounts for about 20% of the population. People who, as, as this slide suggests, want spirituality but don't want to be pinned to any specific religion. Now, some of these are people who gave church a go but got their fingers burnt. Now they want God, but they don't want the church. You can't love the head and hate the body. Others are fascinated by the idea of a higher power governing the universe. They like the idea of the spiritual realm being out there as a bit of a comfort thing. They think of Jesus as a good guy. Great sort of voice alongside all the others. And they won't identify with church because they don't want to nail their colors to the mast of Christianity. But they'll pursue spirituality in search of the answers that best suits them. The issue with that is when you put your spiritual self out there without filter, you're going to absorb all sorts of garbage. No one's spiritual self lies dormant. If Jesus isn't occupying that space, something else will and it won't always be good the alternative somethings are never that good Romans 1 tells us about the nature of mankind left to its own devices although they knew God they never glorified him as God or gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and the foolish hearts were darkened Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. See, if we keep God at arm's length, we will by nature pull our more humanistic spirituality close instead. We will ponder God, but we will humanize him. We will think about spiritual matters, but we will, we will open ourselves up to the wrong things if Jesus isn't what we're open to. It was old Matthew Henry back at the turn of the 20th century who said that in the non-Christian world of spiritual void, even devils will pass for deities. But then, of course, Philip comes on the scene. Shows up in Samaria and he reignites what Jesus started. You got your thumbs back in your Bibles there? Good, let's keep reading. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. I know we've covered some of this last week, but we'll continue the story here. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and he said, Give me also this ability 
so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive this Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they'd further proclaimed the word of God and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. The Samaritans were turning away from all other religious and spiritual expressions and embracing Jesus. That's what was going on there. Even a sorcerer was being swept up in this. You hear a lot of missionary stories about even their their, their big chief and their their chief um you know like chief uh, you know uh, witch doctor and these sort of things coming to Christ. Think of something like that. This is going on here. This is pretty massive. It's so big. And the Philip and the apostles, when you think about it, needed a very different discipleship process here than what they had in Jerusalem. When you get people only marginally familiar with Jesus and find that they are willing to turn to him when the opportunity is presented to them, what comes next? That's a situation they found themselves in. In Jerusalem, everyone knew who Jesus was. They'd heard about him. They were very familiar with the story. So when people were going, this Jesus that you know about, let me explain it more, they're going to, they join the dots and they go, all right, what must I do to be saved? In Samaria, it wasn't quite so well known. It wasn't quite so well embraced. There were other worldviews in play. And all of a sudden, you needed a totally different discipleship model there because you're, you're not starting at a 6 out of 10 knowledge of Jesus. You're starting at a 2 out of 10 knowledge of Jesus. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of a time in 2004 when <laughs> we were invited to a youth camp. And I was really excited about this. I'm a young youth pastor at this stage. And I'm excited about my first main preaching gig at a camp. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be amazing. And it was. It was evident that the leaders had bitten off more than they could chew. They'd gotten a, a bigger crowd than they anticipated. They had a bunch of unchurched kids come along. And the Christian kids had been rattled because they'd just a few weeks prior had a fatal car crash in their church. And that was affecting all the kids too. One of the young adults passed away. So you've got this rattled and shaken Christian group of kids and a bunch of wide-eyed with wonder unchurched kids all in one campsite. And they're going, Cam, here's the microphone. You lead the charge. So on the Friday night, the first night, I just shared my story, shared my testimony, shared where I'd come from. And it was amazing because all those unchurched kids responded to the gospel that night. All of them. Yep, we're there. We're, let's do this. Jesus, your Lord. All the kids from the church were like, blessed to see that. Were revived a bit in themselves. Got back to remembering the main thing, which is Jesus. After the event, 
the youth leader came up to me and asked me something I'll never forget. With fear in his eyes, he goes, what do I do with these guys now? What do I do with them? I think we'd all be asking ourselves that if 20 new believers walked in the door next week. And I definitely think poor Philip was asking himself that back in Samaria. I'm one guy and everyone wants to turn to Jesus. What do I do next? We have in these verses a case study in what early discipleship should begin to look like. We see some things that the apostles prioritized. And we see some things which we need to instill into new believers. Sadly, some of these things are found by studying everything that Simon is not. He's been part of the story and part of the crowd, but he's still nowhere near Jesus. And even after his interactions with Philip, with Peter and John, it becomes clear that becoming a disciple of Jesus is not on his to-do list. But what we do see are some great ideas and some great things that we can instill into new believers. When people start coming in the door, start saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, these are some of the things that we can put into them. First up, we notice the most immediate thing on their mind. The most immediate things the apostles did, extend ministry to them and lead them towards the Holy Spirit. Doing that will put these people in a place of dependence on Jesus, not the person who made the introductions. It's really, there's a very big risk that whoever leads someone to Christ will become the guru to a person who leads to, instead of pointing them to Jesus and showing them how they can operate in the power of the Spirit, we can set up systems where we're too dependent on people instead. And if we get, a, if we get out of the blocks that way with new believers... You need me to see you steer you straight instead of you need Jesus to steer you straight. We're going to be in a world of hurt with those people because we're not going to develop proper disciples. We're going to have followers of us, not followers of Christ. So they go, you know what? Let me introduce you to the Holy Spirit. Who is what? The Spirit of the risen Christ, right? Get them to interact with Jesus personally. Jesus the teacher, Jesus the comforter, Jesus the source of power for right living and get them to to interact with him as soon as possible. You see, if we do that, Jesus will do a bunch more things in them than any one of us can. I see new believers get put through weeks of counseling and, and all this other work and, and their spiritual input is sort of put on a second rung, uh, rung. Not the way to go. Get them towards Jesus in power as quick as possible. It's amazing what they can do. But it's also this work of the Spirit that exposes the metal of this so-called disciple in their midst. Let me show you some things that Simon was not by comparing the rest of the Samaritan believers. First up, the Samaritan new believers would go deep. 
They were willing to go deeper with their faith. And as the, the apostles were taking them into deep things, taking them to, to things of deeper knowledge of the Spirit of God, deeper knowledge of the Word of God, deeper knowledge of the presence of God. But Simon remained shallow. For Simon and the rest of Samaria, it was clear that Philip was bringing, you know, what he was bringing to the city was the real deal. When Simon came boasting of his exploits and gifts, Philip came with a message that elevated Jesus and not himself. He came going, not look at me, but he said, look at Jesus. He made it clear as a herald that he was coming to pronounce the arrival of the true Messiah. He pointed to the word of God and how it was fulfilled, not in his own appearing like Simon claimed, but in the appearance of Christ. And there were miracles backing that, up, backing that up. That was so powerful and so real that the resident magician came to a point where he couldn't compare. It's like the magicians in Pharaoh's court. The prophets and the, and the advisors in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. All of them falling short when the power of God is clearly on display. So Simon and his town folk head on down to the river and get baptized. They acknowledge their place outside of God's plan and they're going on public record identifying with this Jesus, the Messiah. But unfortunately, that's about where Simon's faith development stopped. His life from that point on was not one of metamorphosis, but of mimicry, mimicking. He looked the part, he was present at the right things, and he befriended the right people, got close to Pastor Phil. But he did not allow the Word of God to take root in his life. See, when we offer discipleship to new believers, and to any believer for that matter, our task is not to get them looking the part, but living it. By doing this, when we emphasize that, people will separate themselves from the old habits of their lives and they'll live in pursuit of God's power, not their own. By looking Godward in all that they do, they'll become more like Him and their faith will get deeper. By looking selfward, particularly the way Simon did, they will remain shallow, they'll remain insecure individuals with impure motives. A true disciple draws their applause from heaven. A false disciple is always looking for the approval of man. They get the outside looking right because it suits their status, but in the inside never improves. True disciples allow their faith to go deep. And as a church, we need to begin getting ready for this. As new believers come in, we need to not only communicate a deep faith, but model it. And show them what it looks like. And create an environment that facilitates new believers getting deep in their faith. If you sit down with a new believer and the word of God is not opened, you have not discipled them. You have not prayed with that person. What are you doing? But also, how deep are you? Because discipleship is a process of reproduction, isn't it? Who you are gets amplified in the people that you lead. 
You know that as parents. Parents, who you are gets amplified in your children, doesn't it? Right? Who you are gets amplified in your children. Christian, who you are will be amplified in the people that you disciple. Is your faith deep enough to hold up to that? Second, true believers pursue character. But Simon, in his falsehood, pursued power. The apostles are laying their hands on the Samaritan believers. The Holy Spirit is falling on these people. And these new believers are experiencing something amazing. It was a special thing for the apostles to have done here. When they made the full measure of the Holy Spirit of Jesus available to the Samaritans. And in doing so, they gave these once despised and misunderstood people the full endorsement of the Hebraic Jerusalem church. There's something happening where these people are becoming bolder. Some are acting and speaking with greater wisdom and it's helping them make better Christian choices. Some have gotten fresh courage and insight and they're articulating their faith with boldness and surprising clarity given how long they've known Jesus. Some may have demonstrated charismatic gifts that built up and encouraged the entire group of believers. In fact, I'd almost guarantee that. In the middle of this joyous occasion, there is a certain solemnness about it as well. The gravity of this moment is having a tremendous effect on the apostles too. Later down the track, we'll learn that the church in Jerusalem is blown away by what the Spirit is doing outside of their midst. But all Simon saw was an outward flow. He saw the power that these believers were experiencing. He saw joy and happiness that was transmitted by what he thought were magical hands. He interpreted this as power to be obtained. And for him in his trade, the source of all things powerful. He had no clue of the theology or the purpose of anything that was going on and he didn't care for it either. For him, this was just another way of using the spiritual realm to manipulate others. He saw it as nothing more than spiritual magic. And his complete ignorance is on display when he does what he does to try to get hold of this apostolic power. How much for this laying on of this secret laying hands or secret power thing that you've got? I want what you got. How much will it cost me? How much cash will you receive for me to get what you've got? He wanted the power and therefore the position the apostles appeared to have. This is not about just naturally. You know what? Anyone filled with the Holy Spirit can actually go and pray for another person. You'll probably see the Holy Spirit come on them too. All right? It's the same spirit of Jesus and we've got this priesthood of all believers happening, right? So it's not like some people have the power and others don't. But what we do see here is an apostolic leadership in place that has been challenged. We have church leadership, people who are actually leading people towards Jesus and people wanting to be like them and get close to them without paying the price of doing that, without the discipleship journey it takes to get there. He wanted the apostolic power without doing the hard yards that they had done. The time spent that they had with Jesus. 
the journey of persecution that they had gone through. The depth of knowledge that they had received from the presence of God all that time. People by nature like to be on top of the stack. We like to climb corporate ladders. We like to work our way up pecking orders. We like the recognition that comes with every achievement. We like authority, don't we? I do. Power is an addictive thing. We seek knowledge because knowledge is power. We seek promotions because positions equal power. We seek a stage or a soapbox because having a voice endorsed by others puts us in a place of power. The power the world gives is on the basis of how much charisma a person displays. People like you, they draw to you, therefore you should be empowered. Trouble with this thinking is that power on the foundation of charisma alone is prone to abuse. Simon had every intention of paying for this power as merely an investment. And that he would in turn receive power to pass it on. truth is true biblical and ecclesiastical power is bestowed to people who have good character 1 timothy 3 church leadership is to have some runs under the on the board before they are appointed elders cannot be novices in their faith they must have a solid faith reputation deacons need to be tested for authenticity throughout all of scripture we see that god is concerned about the hearts of men not their gifts or their popularity I remember one kid I worked with years ago. We were at a youth live event. And we had to, my job was the new Christians coordinator for that event. 600 people were going to give their life to Christ that weekend. And my job was to make sure they were connected with youth groups. I worked with a young kid, 18-year-old, been a Christian a couple of months. And he's helping me cut up strips of paper with names and address forms on it. And as he's doing that, he's cutting me up. He goes, does this make me a youth leader, Ken? I'm like, if you think serving like that is leadership, then absolutely. Yeah, come and be on my team any day. Best attitude ever. When new believers come in, we must at all times promote good character as a prerequisite for empowerment. There's a lot of people that want to operate in this whole spiritual realm or do these different things, but they haven't had their character tested. People that want to pursue prophecy or people who want to pursue different things in leadership. But we can't just say anything goes. We need to communicate a standard with that because God is a holy God and we're doing his business. It's really important we get that right. It's not about charisma, it's about character. It's not about power, it's about Jesus doing a transformative work in us. Finally, true disciples receive correction well. And Simon refused it. Peter is offended at the notion that a God-given gift could be purchased. And rightly so. Peter is also the one who needs to administer correction here. And rightly so again. He's got a proven track record of having the Spirit lead him to bring correction. We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. He knew that the attitude of Simon here was symptomatic of a deeper issue and that his heart was not truly set apart for God like the rest of the Samaritan believers. So he calls him out on it. 
I love the interaction here. If you go to the J.B. Phillips translation, you actually get a very, very accurate picture. Well, it's only a paraphrase. He actually captures it right here, and all commentators say so. It's great. This is Peter's comments in the J.B. Phillips version. To hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God for money? You have no share or part in this matter, for your heart is not honest before God. All you can do now is repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the evil intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I see inside you, and I see a man bitter with jealousy and bound with his own sin. Wow, people have called me harsh. Simon did some right things. But Peter makes it clear here that this incident highlights where he's really at. He's not on track to being embraced by the rest of the church at this point. He was seen as a threat and a hypocrite. He hadn't separated himself from his old ways or from his old motives. And therefore, his reasons and his, and his plans for getting involved in this new faith community were tainted. He needed to truly repent and do it fast because his heart was dark. If he rejected the truth now, who knew how far from God he would end up? At this point, Peter and the apostles have done all they could for him. They've showed the truth of the gospel by word and deed. They showed what true repentance and transformation really looks like. And they showed that there was a supernatural power available to anyone willing to follow Jesus. They wouldn't have to go it alone. The rest was up to Simon Magus to decide for himself. Unfortunately, he wasn't getting it. His faith is nothing more than superstition. And we see that in his request to the apostles to pray for him. Please ask God not to do that. Again, he's not concerned about his state before God. He's only worried about immediate consequences. Not everyone who was witnessed to will receive the, joy, the word with joy and gladness. In fact, some will increase in hostility. We know that. If we hold up our part, we're going to see some disciples emerge. But not every single one of them. Some will not go the journey. We need to be prepared for that. As sad as that is. Over time, Simon Magus became well known to the church fathers. And they had a few things to say about him, particularly going into the second century. The Samaritan Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, wrote at length about him and verified his status in the Samaritan community. Later in the second century, the Bishop Irenaeus, who was one of, one of John's descendants, Irenaeus, described him as the author of all sorts of heresies, and he was traced by him and others as the, one of the originators of the Gnostic doctrine that John had to write against you know, in his time. His legacy in some circles even today is a word in our vocabulary, simony, meaning to buy or sell a church office or promise of spiritual favor. Correction is part and parcel with raising children. Scripture tells us that new believers are like children. Correction is part and parcel with new believers too. We need to be willing to bring that in. We need to be willing to do so in love. I think it's Proverbs 12. It says, he who loves correction loves knowledge. He who hates reproof is what? 
King James Version, brutish. NIV, stupid. True, look it up. We see here that the right people gave the right correction. Peter, who had the right spirit himself, out of love could deliver a strong word which also had characteristics of love about it. It took people empowered by the Holy Spirit to show appropriate discernment, to speak not just to the superficial elements of a situation, but to get to the heart of the matter as well when you bring in correction. It's not about just talking about what you see on the surface. Don't go do that. Don't lie. Don't do that. What is driving that? Get deeper, because that's what the Spirit of God teaches us to do. Peter wasn't scared of losing a spiritual child by correcting Simon. He knew that if he failed to bring this correction, the entire group of believers would be put at risk. Today, we tend to put off bringing correction in the life of the church because we don't want to hurt or lose individuals. The hassle is we're going to lose them anyway because their heart is not right. So it's in ours and their interest to bring appropriate correction when the time calls, when the Spirit says to So there's the picture of solid discipleship. Let's not be like that camp guy who goes, what do I do with them? Instead, let's get ourselves ready and get a bit of a plan in in place. What will your house churches do to make this possible? What will you do as an individual taking someone under your wing and showing them the ways of Christ? Who can you meet with once a week? If one of our dozen or so evangelists who stood up last week brought someone in, can you take them off their hands and begin to build into their life? That's what it's sort of going to take. There's a church over in Colombia. They had such a crazy revival with thousands of people coming to Christ that their senior pastor got up and said, here's your journey. You are either discipling somebody or you're sitting under discipleship. You pick, you do. They didn't have a system big enough. They were trying, you can't have the, the, the corporate structure to make that happen if you've got so many people coming in. It was just that church being a royal priesthood together. As individuals, if every one of us said, I'm going to find the first person who comes to the door and put them under my wing and show them the ways of Christ, imagine how much effect that would have in the life of the church. Pretty cool. I don't know what to do with them. Here you go. Show them your depth of faith. Show them your character and show them where the scriptures teach that. And when they're going astray, out of the love that the Spirit gives, correct it. Speak into it with love. And don't just talk about the surface thing of, you just did that sin. Let's look deeper and go, what's driving that? What's under the surface? Don't be afraid to correct. Make sure you do everything out of a spirit of love. I'm going to wind up and I'll get the band ready to play. There's a video I watched a while back where some credible pastors were doing a bit of a round table. And they were asked a very important question here. Do we dilute the process of discipleship in church today? Do we dilute the process of discipleship in the church? 
I actually do believe that the modern church sometimes does. Jesus was pretty full on about discipleship. Count the cost if you want to be following me. Take up your cross. Identify with the cross. Do these things. That It's a really strong call to discipleship. Sometimes we kind of go, well, just come, fill a pew, be around it, take your time getting into it, see you in heaven when you get there, if you get there. The church can't afford to do that. Who remembers being taught how to, um, you know, in woodwork, how to create a template when you cut one piece of timber and then you use that alone to make the next template and then the next one? Don't keep using the template of a template of a template because it always will end up out of square, right? You won't get an equal thing. You've got to follow the same template all the way through. Jesus is our cornerstone. Everything refreshes, ref- references off of him. Let's make sure that we don't dilute who we are or dilute what the cost of following Jesus is. Because I'll tell you right now, if we communicate the real gospel and the real call to discipleship, it will be more attractive than the diluted form. Why? Because there is something in us that wants to live for a cause, not just for a thing, not for a club. We don't want to do just enough We want to be in something, warts and all. During the Great Awakening, the Great English Awakening in the late 18th century, George Whitfield saw thousands of people say the prayer, respond to the gospel, claim to be a follower of Jesus in his in his uh, travelling. But he never considered that the mark of success. Instead, he wanted to know where they were going six or 12 months later, and only then would he comment on the success or failure of any evangelistic work. My challenge last week is that we as the Hebraic church in our Jerusalem need to release Hellenistic evangelists to go and reach into Samaria. And once we've done that, we're to embrace our new Samaritan brothers and sisters and bring them into the family of God and not withhold any part of our amazing faith from them. And this week, in the wake of the things we looked at, we can kind of see a few things that we should be doing so that Simon doesn't emerge, the rest of the Samaritans flourish instead. Our job description is clear. Take the incoming Samaritans on a journey of true discipleship where they get as deep as we are in our understanding of our faith. Where they get as strong in character as we are. And where we bring the right line of correction to them in order to see them achieve their Christian best. And when they get to that point, they can then join us in providing that same sort of care to the next round of Samaritans that come in. If we get it right, it'd be great. The Great Commission was to make disciples, not just to get people to say the prayer. It takes evangelists to reach them, but it's going to take a whole community to grow them. Hopefully, you've got a bit of an idea of where to start with that. Let's close in prayer.